I'm Neil Pickett, and this is episode 13 of Making Art. Each episode of Making Art features a conversation between me and a colleague in their creative space about their journey and their creative process, how they approach the business of making work. But unfortunately, the current pandemic has meant that face-to-face meetings are out of the question and so, using the technological wonder of COVID, Zoom, this conversation took place in my current creative space, the studio. And my guest this week is the Melbourne playwright, Joanna Murray-Smith. Born into a literary communist family, Jo has, over a 30-year career, established herself as one of Australia's most successful and most loved authors for our stages. Her plays, which include Honour, Rapture, Bombshells, Love Child, Female of the Species, Switzerland, Fury, and most recently American Song, have graced the stages of over two dozen countries, including productions on Broadway, at the National Theatre in London, and on the West End. And she's received a litany of awards for her work, including the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Best Play for both Honour and Rapture, the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award in 2012 for The Gift, and the Vice-Chancellor's Award from Melbourne University, where her career began as a student writer. And she was also the inaugural recipient of the 2016 Mona Brand Award, which is presented by the State Library of New South Wales in recognition of an outstanding Australian woman writing for the stage or screen. I spoke with Jo virtually from her home in inner Melbourne and with the city shut down due to the pandemic, it was almost impossible to escape the question of how she was managing herself through the lockdown. Ladies and gentlemen, Joanna Murray-Smith. I was reasonably cavalier. I kind of like, I was almost, um, you know, there was part of me that was kind of intellectually really curious about this sort of disaster movie scenario playing out in my actual lifetime. Mm. Uh, And then, of course, as it became more and more personal, it became less and less intellectually interesting and more and more devastating. Um, And uh, not, you know, not just for me and my work but also for my kids, I guess, and then, of course, for friends in New York, you know, we've got a lot of friends in New York who are really at the worst of it, really, really suffering, um, you know, having nervous breakdowns and um, really having a hard time. And, uh, yeah, it's just been, it's been this sort of encroaching sort of sense of the size and the shape of this thing. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, at a certain point I thought, well, the silver linings are not going to present themselves. So I have to find those silver linings, which I think is what a lot of people did. And I figured that if I could keep enough money trickling in to sort of basically feed the kids, Mm. um, then I was going to use this time to, um, you know, I can't think of a, of a, I would like to have a more poetic metaphor, but really kind of to grow as a human and so to think about things I don't normally have time to think about, to read books I don't normally have time to read, to listen to music that I don't normally listen to, um, to watch movies that I don't normally see and, um, and try and use this time 
as an artist to not necessarily to write anything but to um, feed the soul that is going to feed the work in the future. Um, and that's more or less been my approach. Yeah, I think it's interesting because <clears throat> in the cut and thrust of daily arts practice, you don't get a lot of time to feed that soul. Exactly. And uh, you get into the kind of rat wheel of production and, you know, we all complain about the neoliberal way of of funding the arts, say, but we in turn have adopted a neoliberal approach to art making. You know, we churn stuff out yeah. because we have to. Yeah. And yeah. so this, for me anyway, has been an opportunity for me to go, no, hang on a second, well, mm. what is it that I, you know, what am I thinking on a, more, on, on a much deeper and more basic level about the way that yeah. things happen, for me anyway? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. That's exactly what I've done. And, and as a sort of tangent to that, I, um, I thought, well, I'm going to use this period to read, I'm only going to read memoirs. I'm uh-huh. only going to read... Uh, biographies, um, actually they're all autobiographies and I don't normally read autobiographies very much. I normally read fiction and I've just been completely um, blown away by the stuff I've been reading, you know, and, and I, I kind of think it's it's been a very rich and kind of wonderful way of socialising, you know, <laughs> uh, that can't socialise in real life. So I'm going to read, I'm going to socialise in the pages of these books and and kind of you, because that's the nature of reading memoir is that you're sort of having a conversation with the person who's writing and a conversation with yourself when you're reading about other people's lives and how they may or may not relate to your own. And, um, and of course, you know, in every memoir, there are, there are things that connect with you very deeply. Um, and I found that this sort of like this oil well, you know, in my in my bedroom, you know, it's just is that the, that's not that stack of books I can see sitting behind you. There. <laughs> no, I've got the stack of memoirs over in the other corner, and I and I just keep ordering them, you know, like I'm I'm powering through them because I, each one is sort of better than the last, um, and they've taken me to all different corners of the the world, um, and very different writing styles as well, like some are very, very sort of prosaic and straightforward and others are very sort of poetic and um, non-linear. So it's been, yeah, it's been hugely stimulating uh, in terms of, you know, creativity but also just in terms of um, me and my own conversation with myself about what I do, whether I like what I do, whether I'm good at what I do, if I didn't do this, what else could I do um, and all of that sort of stuff? That's an interesting question because the do I like what I do? You were kind of born to be a writer really, weren't you? You, you grew up in this very literary household. Yeah, uh, I did. I, 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 my, my father was um, uh, a historian and an academic and he wrote non-fiction, a lot of non-fiction, um, it's mainly histories, um, but he was also the editor of Overland magazine, which is happily. He was an angry. He was one of the Angry Penguins, wasn't he? And he was the Melbourne representative of the Angry Penguins. Um, and, and a communist. Yes, the house, and a communist. <laughs> and, had, a few, um, had a few things going on. And a big drinker. Um, and 
not an alcoholic, but, you know, it was a pretty uh, robust social life at our house. There were lots of parties. There were lots of friends. Everyone was in the arts or tangential to publishing, journalism, um, all kind of uh, very idealistic and articulate lefties. Um, and so the parties went all night, the boozing went all night. And as my brother and sister, who are 10 years older than me, said they used to wake up every Sunday morning to see who had slept on the living room floor the night before. And um, it was, um, I mean, the important thing about it really was, and my mother was as involved in Overland as my father and an English teacher, and extremely well read and kind of lived for, for music and literature. And um, the great benefit of that upbringing was really that they never questioned that anyone would want to make their life through their creativity. Um, it was just, uh, it, you know, it was, it was not only completely normal, um, but um, it was noble. I mean, they saw it as a as a really uh, lofty pursuit, a great pursuit, and they were proud when I said I wanted to be a writer. And I, I think that probably above anything else was the biggest kind of um, you know shortcut to a creative life that any child could possibly have. Um, I mean, you know, on the other hand most of the people we knew didn't have lots of money. So, I mean, you know, I could see that it wasn't going to be, um, you know, a, a kind of regular life, but but it was and has been um, a most privileged life in terms of excitement and pleasure and being excited when you wake up in the morning about what you're going to do and the people you're going to work with and the extraordinary collaborations that come out of that life with actors and directors and all sorts of designers and all sorts of people. And I, I sort of think, um, you know, we talk a lot about the downside of a life in the arts because most people are kind of blissfully unaware of how hard it is. And we feel, I think, a, a duty to let them know how tough this country makes it to have a life in the arts. Um, but we also need to talk about, and I think about this a lot when I talk to young people, the incredible privilege and joy of a life in the arts. And, you know, this, there's no comparison no. Um, to, to, to anything, really. No, it's just, well, here we are, a couple of people who've known each other for, what, for over 20 years, having a chat about yeah. making stuff. I mean, that's, yes. I, and that's one of the things I've found in this lockdown is, the, is that I'm, I've, I've had the time to reflect on just how, how fortunate a life it has been. Uh, yeah. Rather than kind of looking at it from, oh, what 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 isn't happening? Why why are, why aren't we able to do these things? Because, and it's reminded me. It's reminded me of just how how blessed I am to have this creative life. You said in that when you were talking uh, earlier on. You said, uh, "Do I like what I'm doing?" Do you like mm. what you're doing? Because I, I must admit, I've asked myself that question as well. Or do I, I like the way I'm doing it? Maybe is a better one for me. Well, I think the answer to that question is that I, I love being a writer, but I don't love being a writer in all forms. 
So I love being a playwright. But for instance, in um, during the pandemic, I've uh, been doing just sort of to put bread on the table. I've been doing a lot of screen work. I've just said yes to anything that comes my way, mm. uh, essentially. Um, and there is a lot about writing for the screen that I find immensely frustrating and also sometimes boring, um, because unlike in theatre, you know, as you are sitting down to write, uh, and often work very hard, I've been working, you know, pretty hard the last couple of months, um, that what you're writing will quite possibly never see the light of day, um, because it depends on an enormous amount of money, and it depends on uh, an enormous kind of infrastructure of uh, personalities and processes um, for ever to get made. And I find that I think that if I'd gone straight into screenwriting and then moved into playwriting, I would be fine with that. But doing it the other way around is very difficult because writing for the theatre, especially being a successful writer for the theatre, I'm used to not only making my living that way but um, but having pretty much complete freedom. Um, I've never, and, and also complete trust that what I'm writing is going to be heard. I mean, if I want to, I can invite a bunch of friends to come and have dinner and read a play around a table and that in itself is is a joy, you know, mm. that in itself is a little mini production. Um, but um, so I don't love the screenwriting, although every once in a while I have an experience that really surprises me and I've just been uh, writing a, um, a, bio, uh, a, a sort of biopic of a um, famous artist uh, whose name I'm not allowed to mention, unfortunately. But it involved um, a lot of research into uh, pre-revolutionary St. Petersburg Mm -hmm. and between the wars Paris. And there are few more beautiful escapes, you know, in a time of lockdown than lying in bed and reading about, you know, these extraordinary bohemian artists who whose antics would make you blush neil um they they're blushing already joe (laughs) they they certainly knew how to do decadence um and it was a fantastic story about a you know a woman artist really coming into herself um who, who became very successful but against the odds and uh in living through pretty diabolical periods of um, 20th century history. And that travel into a world I didn't know so much about and into a human I knew nothing about um, became incredibly um, pleasurable. So there are upsides to the screenwriting as well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I often I often question what I'm doing. I often say I want to work in a bookshop, I, I, you know, um, and but that is usually more to do with the pragmatics um, surrounding a writing life than the writing itself. It's to do with you know having precarious income. It's to do with feeling undervalued. It's mm. to do with a hopeless literary uh, you know cultural uh, criticism community. You know where you feel like you're not getting decent feedback. And I mean it's all of those frustrations that get me down, um, whinge, 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 not the writing itself. The Mm. writing itself is just joy. 
No, it's fair. It's fair that you say that. But you've you've been criticised uh, certainly, well, pretty much for your whole career for a what you write about and b the kind of characters that you create. How do you deal with that? I mean, you write about the world that you came from, the world that you inhabit. Uh, it seems to me, um, I don't have a, pro- I don't have a real problem with that, but some people do. Um, yeah, and and they're the same ones who rave about Chekhov or, or Shakespeare, who you know were both writing about the aristocracy and kings and queens. I mean, the point is not who, um, you know, who your characters are in terms of their socioeconomic background. The point is the quality of the story that you're telling um, and and whether your characters are authentic enough to be able to bear the weight of that story. And, you know, that's nothing to do with whether your characters are working class or middle class. I mean, when I was a young writer, that criticism really stung, I suppose because I was, you know, left-leaning politically um, and wanted to be sort of PC. I was hungry for approval, like all artists, and so I also wanted to be liked. Um, and uh, it was a little bit like criticising me for being, you know, um, short or huh. deaf in one ear. It was, it was not something that I could change. I mean, as a writer, you have to write the characters that you can convincingly um, conjure from your imagination and your imagination is fed by your experience and your autobiography. And so there's very little choice involved in that. Um, but now that I'm older, I kind of don't, I just find that criticism so kind of, um, you know. Well, it's an old story, isn't it? Well, it's old fashioned and, and also it bears very little currency anywhere else but Australia. Mm. You know, it's a very, very parochial attitude, actually. You don't, I never, I've never had that criticism in, um, in the US or in the UK. I mean, I've had lots of criticism, but not criticism on the basis of the socioeconomic privilege of my characters. I, I think you said once, I live with the fear of being at the mercy of other people's tastes. Um, mm. Do you feel that more acutely in Australia than you do overseas? Uh, I I feel it more acutely um, in London because I feel as if London is kind of the centre of the world. And so when um, when I'm not to someone's taste, it's written so big, you know, everyone reads that. Um, but um, it it it's still... Uh, a huge fear. I don't think it's as bad as when I was younger. I mean, you know, it's still pretty bad. But uh, when I was younger, it was really um, a battle. Every time a play was produced, there was a, a really profound battle to sort of sit down and write again because I was in so much pain. Um, and the pain, the pain was there even with the productions that were uh, better reviewed because there's always people who don't like what you do um, and whether that's, you know, your mum's neighbour or whether it's um, the reviewer in The Guardian, um, 
you carry the negative comments with you, not the positive ones. I mean, I literally, I would love to be able to say it means a lot to me when people say, you know, I loved it, I loved it, I loved it. But actually the one comment that, you you know, you go home with is the one that's, that's um, you know, um, I've seen all your work and uh, this is the only one I didn't relate to or you know, something like that. Um, and, you know, I was very, very, very hurt when um, a uh, well-known Melbourne director uh, and sort of um, arts figure said probably 10 years ago now, um, but that's in a 30-year career, said that I'd never written anything better than Honour, which was my, you know, third or fourth play um, in, in maybe two dozen plays. And um, I, you know, that that really, really upset me um, because I wondered if it was true, of course, um, and also because I felt that that person should have known that the effect on a writer or an actor or any artist to be told that they're not getting better as they move through their career is is probably, you know, one of the most damaging um, and, and self-fulfilling critiques because, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to write well when you're not sort of blazing with faith in yourself. It's hard to do anything creatively when you're not blazing with faith in yourself. Um, yeah. There's, there's, there's something very autobiographical, well, not autobiographical, but you reveal a lot of yourself in your plays, I feel, and I don't know whether you agree with that, but I'm wondering... Wondering how much of, I know you met Dorothy Hewitt when you were a young girl and if there's anything that sort of like um, plays that are, something like The Chapel Perilous, which is, you know, incredibly self-revelatory. Did you, yeah. did you, you know, Sally Bourne, is Sally Bourne, who, who is Sally Bourne? Is she, is she well, Dorothy Hewitt or? Yeah, um, I, I think we, I think we are our characters without the shadow of a doubt. I mean, you know, our characters are our devils and our angels. Um, and whereas heavily invested in the characters who are perhaps um, revealed uh, unsympathetically as we are in the characters who are the sort of supposed heroines um, or heroes. And, uh, yes, I mean, Dor- Dorothy was a very, very close friend of my parents, Dorothy and Merv, her husband, and uh, I grew up with with Dorothy. Um, you know, I, I can see her right now sitting in our big bush garden in Tea Tree Lane in Mount Eliza. Um, this great big woman with her beautiful long curly hair, um, always incredibly enthusiastic um, and uh, kind uh, and uh, inspiring to kids. And um, she was absolutely in everything she wrote and I am absolutely in everything I, in everything that I write and that's why I say to writing students, you know, if you're not prepared to really reveal the parts of yourself that you don't like, the chances of writing anything that is going to really sort of have that emotional Velcro with audiences is very unlikely because what audiences connect to is truth. Um, they... they are almost infallible uh, judges of truthfulness 
in writing. Um, the infallible and, and judges of tr truth in performance as well. You've got to be willing as exactly. a performer to actually look at your ugly side. Exactly, exactly. So if you're not prepared to experience that pain, and it is painful, um, then you're probably not a writer um, and or, an, yeah, indeed, an actor. Um, it is totally, uh, you know, revealing. And I've had plenty of experiences, particularly when I was younger, where I, uh, but I, I still do it now, where I'm writing with this, what I've, you know, called before a kind of willful amnesia, where I forget that the work will ever be seen by the public. Because if I thought about what I'm writing being received in a public space, I would not have the courage to write it. Um, and some of the plays go into territory that's really kind of unseemly on a moral or ethical level. And, it, you know, I, it kind of uh, horrifies me to think that people know I have those thoughts, let alone I am that person. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's it's all autobiographical. I mean, none of the plot lines have been autobiographical, you know, I hasten to add, having written plays about child abuse and, you know, uh, uh, adoption and... Um, Islamophobia uh, and... Spiritual, spiritual epiphanies, as you well know. Um, oh, but... Um, I didn't have it in that play, I'm, I must have <laughs> I, it wasn't my job to have the spiritual epiphany. No, no, it was your job to deny them, yeah. possibly an easier job. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I had to get in touch with a bit of the ugly side of myself to do that. <laughs> I also got into a lot of trouble for smoking real cigarettes in that play. Um, oh. Yeah, you're not allowed wow. to sm you, yeah. But it doesn't matter what cigarette you smoke on stage, people in the front row still cough. You can yeah, smoke exactly. those herbal things as much as you like and someone <laughs> else, you light it up and someone down the front will go... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I just smoked camels, you know. Yeah, uh, good on you. That I, must have given your performance its ring of authenticity. It was part of the. It was a part of the kind of rebellious nature of the character, uh, cutting through into real life. Yes, method, method, method. Yeah, it was my one and only method performance. To be honest with you, hey, you said that <laughs> music was huge for your mother. We're going to go to a break now. Um, yeah. What about you? Is music big for you when you when you're writing? Do you listen to music? I don't listen to music while I'm writing unless it is wordless. So, yeah, same. Yeah. And it has to be so, kind of rhythmless for me as well. Yeah, yeah. I I generally don't listen to music when I'm writing, but I love music, um, and music is a big part of our lives in the house. Mm. And I now have a son who looks as if he's going to be you know, possibly um, a musician for his uh, kind of creative process. Well, you say um, that with some sense of some sense of concern. Well, you know, it's I'm critically aware of wanting to give him the benefit of what I had, which was um, communicating the joy and the excitement. And I think he's grown up with that, really. I mean, the kids all came to, you know, play all the plays, everybody else's plays, um, lots of concerts, um, opera, everything. Um, and I think they were furnished with a great sense of the joy. But, um, you know, it's maybe tougher now than it was when I was starting out. Um, 
And the hard thing for him is that he's good in multiple uh, art forms, whereas I was only ever good in one. And I think it can be really hard if you, you know, he's 19, he's just finished school, where he's feeling these equal pulls between film direction and music, you know, and you think, well, if you've got the passion, you'll be able to make either work. But how do you choose? Like, how do you choose that? I think or it, will, yeah. it will choose him, I guess. That's, that's the, the way it generally works, I reckon. I reckon you yeah. go out there and you do things and it'll, ta- it'll find you. So if yeah. you're going to listen to a piece of music now, what would you listen to? Oh, I'd probably, well, it's, it's coming on to evening here. So I would probably, um, I, would, I would imagine that my husband is making me a, a beautiful martini and we were listening to Chet Baker. Fantastic. Uh, any particular Chet song or can I choose it? You can choose it. Trumpet player and vocalist Chet Baker, one of the leading lights of the East Coast cool jazz movement, and But Not For Me. From the classic album Chet Baker Sings, one of the tunes my guest Joanna Murray-Smith might be sipping a martini to. And if you're having a martini, good luck to you. You're listening to episode 13 of Making Art with me, Neil Piggott. Making Art is released on Apple Podcasts and Google Play every fortnight-ish. And if you'd like just a little more information about my guest each ep, pop onto the Making Art website, www.makingart.com.au. Or you can jump onto the Making Art Facebook page, which I'm pleased to say I'm getting a handle on. And on the website, you'll find helpful links to some of the things we've mentioned in our conversation. You can also send suggestions regarding guests you'd like to hear from, possible ideas for podcast sponsors, or perhaps you'd like to share your martini recipe. Of course, if you have any spare change, you could throw it at me using the donate button, which will help keep the interviews coming. But now it's back to my conversation with Joe. So what's it like to write a commission for one of our state theatre companies? Joe's relationship with the Sydney Theatre Company took a dive under the artistic directorship of Robin Nevin and a very public row, one would have to call it, ensued. That relationship was repaired under the Upton Blanchett regime and a fantastic play emerged. Slowly. Here again is Joanna Murray-Smith. Now, I saw Fury uh, at... Red Stitch, and I know that Fury had, but was that a commission by the Sydney Theatre Company, Fury? Uh, yes, it was. It was a commission um, by uh, Kate and Andrew. Yep. Um, and I think it was partly to rebuild the bridges that um, had been broken Robert, by Robin. Yeah, had broken. And um, and have been broken again, I might add, as they have zero interest in my work. 
Um, but uh, under the current administration. However, um, yeah, I, Andrew and I got talking and I, I talked about this play that I um, I wanted to write really about the concept of sort of the DNA of, of political ideologies and whether, you know, how children define themselves against their parents um, and, uh you know, uh, that idea of lefty families having conservative children, conservative children having radical, conservative families having radical children, that idea of creating your own identity against what you've known. Um, and this story had come to me really, which was, you know, what, like many of my plays, begins with a idea of what would happen if something ostensibly calamitous happened to a a very seemingly stable um, and rather privileged um, family. Um, so just as in, you know, Rapture was kind of sparked of the, the idea of a group of, of, a, of friends having a finding God, so to speak, after their house burns down. And my thought as a writer was how would I feel about that if my friends found God? out of a tragedy. This play began with a thought of how would I feel if uh, a teacher came to my house one night and told me that my son was being interviewed by the police at school for having vandalised a mosque, um, which would be, you know, up there in terms of um, causing enormous uh, self-flagellation, anxiety, um, and, um, you know, deep concern about my parenting um, and my child. And um, so the, the play sort of grew out of that. Um, but it's had two very different incarnations. Yeah, I was, that's what I wanted to speak to you about because you revised, you went back and looked at the play before it was done at Red Stitch, didn't you? I basically rewrote it. Yeah, and what was um, that re in response to maybe half of the play. Um, it was in response to um, my own instincts being uh, confirmed or affirmed by a couple of people whose opinions I respect. So when the play was in rehearsal at Sydney or in development, I think, at, at, uh, at the STC, because the play has two storylines, one is the son who desecrates the mosque and the other is a backstory about his mother who had performed, uh, had been part of a radical group when she was at university and had performed an act of sort of domestic terrorism uh, and the connection between mother and son and the question of whether, you know, extremist acts are any better if they're performed by the left than if they're performed by the right. Um, during the development, I said to Andrew, you know, I have a hunch, Andrew, that we shouldn't be splitting the focus of this story and asking that question. I think that the, the fundamental kind of power of this story and the potency of it is in people identifying with the nature of not controlling their children, that we have these creatures, we raise them the best we're able or willing. Um, we invest them, we hope, with our values and ideologies and want them to perpetuate them, but they are ultimately unto themselves and are capable of surprising us sometimes in terrifying ways. 
And Andrew very strongly disagreed with me. He was attached to the play as I'd written it, um, which was a more intellectual play. And, uh, and so that was the play that was performed in Sydney and was by and large well-received um, and, and a very good, pretty, pretty good production, I thought. Um, but then when Red Stitch wanted to do it, I, I had talked about the play with a, a friend of mine who is a director called Roger Michelle, which some of your list, some of your listeners may know Roger as a film director. He's British um, English uh, director, and he did, you know, he directed lots of sort of big films like Notting Hill and um, Changing Lanes, and uh, uh, you know, Le Weekend, and um, lots of you know, lots of uh, less uh, commercial films as well. Has worked a lot with Hanif Qureshi, and um, um, anyway. Uh, Roger has directed plays of mine in the past and we have a very honest and open relationship in terms of our work and I seem to be able to hear criticism from Roger in a way that doesn't feel destructive, which is a great attribute to having a friend. And uh, he read the play and he said, I love this play, but I think you've made a big mistake in splitting the focus. And I thought, okay, well, there's me and then now I'm getting it from, from someone I trust. And so I said to uh, Red Stitch, um, I want to do it, but I want to change it and I, wanna, I want it to be the play that I think it should be. And my, um, you know, I, I don't know anyone who saw it in both places, so um, I have no audience opinion, but oh, you saw it in both places. Ah, interesting. Oh, well, now let's, let's turn the microphone on to you. Uh, <laughs> Well, Did I the, do the right thing or not? Well, the reason I asked the question uh, was because uh, the Melbourne production was a demonstrably better play and, uh, well, it was a terrific... I think it's quite... I mean, I don't know... I'm not going to say it's the best thing you've ever written, but it was... I mean, it was a staggering piece of work. Um, and... Thanks. No, that's Lovely. all right. Um and I, I, I was wondering, you know, sometimes the company stamp at that level, at that mainstream level, can can overwhelm the piece, or the oh. the imperatives of working for the mainstream. You know, they program a play; it's got to be done. Uh, mm. Can can mean that sometimes that play is compromised, and I just wondered whether, yeah. and I don't want to dip you in it with the uh, with the mainstream, but you know. It seemed to me that the play I saw in Melbourne came from your heart. You know, yes. I, I felt very, a very strong connection to that. Whereas the one I saw yep. in Sydney, I thought, okay, well, this has kind of got the company stamp on it, I felt. Uh, yeah, now, yeah. whether I, that was I, a fair comment or not, uh, that's just the way <laughs> I, I, you know. No, it was the way I felt about it too. Um, so it made I, me ask, I, want to ask the question, what's, what is the difference between a commission and something that you just want to write? Well, generally speaking, the commissions don't come with um, uh, a caveat. No, very rarely. I've I've only really written one play uh, that uh, was uh, kind of interrogated before I could put pen to paper, and that was for an American company. Um, but in Australia, I've really been, you know, what's the play you want to write? I say it and they say, good, go. So that 
it's not so much that. It's not so much having a company looking over your shoulder. It's more, I think, that um, you are you think very deeply about the director you want to work with, and that director is going to have certain biases one way or the other and what I think happened was that I liked Andrew very much um, and I respected him Um, but his approach is very very intellectual and uh, and I think he thought we're a good fit because the ideas in my plays are often pretty intellectual ideas I mean they're they're ideas that you could have a robust argument about without having characters and dialogue but um, in this case, what I felt to, what I discovered too late was that for me, a play can't just be an exchange of ideas, no matter how um, carefully and profoundly one dissects those ideas. If those ideas are not coming out through the mouths of very, very persuasive actors, and very, very persuasive characters, you don't have a piece of theatre. You know, you have a debate. Mm. And the play that was on in Sydney, I think at the point at which I made that discovery, I could easily have changed it because I work very, very fast. And as I say, it involved changing maybe half of the play but not not all of it. Um, you know, Andrew was very happy with a play which is about about big ideas and so I think that's ultimately what it came down to. And when it came to Red Stitch, I thought, well, actually, let me see if I can make this play carry the full emotional drama of that idea in the hearts and minds of people and not simply through um, kind of more surface argument. And so that's what I did. And lucky for me, it was very well directed, but it was also superbly cast. Um, And I thought the actors um, really gave their all to fleshing out the blood and bone of that play um, and not just the kind of concepts or themes. I think you've got to give yourself uh, a bit of credit for that because there was flesh and bone there to be had. Well, I hope so. I mean, that was what I wanted to do with the play. But, you know, there's also, if you're going to really sort of be forensic about what made what makes a play great in a place like Red Stitch and the reason perhaps why they have such a good strike rate in terms of their productions is that there is an immediacy and an energy in a small theatre that you have to your benefit from the get-go. Um, and you oh, yeah, can't it's a compressed, deny. compressed space. Yeah. You put that play in a five hundred seat theatre, and you you are just not going to feel the tensions and the pain of the characters and the love and all the other things um, the way that you do in an eighty seat theatre. Do you find it? Do you find it more challenging writing for the big big house or for the little house? Which or do well, they have different challenges? I don't, I don't write to the uh, space. I write, I write to an invented space in my head. Mm. 
Um, so I don't think too much about that. Um, I mean, you know, I always prefer it when my plays are in smaller venues and, you know, that that perhaps is one of the, you know, some people would say upsides or downsides of the commercial companies that they'll stick you in the bigger theatre if they think you'll sell the tickets um, and that's just part of the reality of the way they operate. Um, so, you know, quite often I think my plays have been in spaces that are too big for them. Um, and some of the most um, pleasurable experiences I've had as a writer, I mean, you know, very, very few pleasurable experiences, I might add, in my own plays um, because I'm so conscious of what I've done badly. But, um, you know, I think of a play like American Song, which was a one-person play yeah, in a tiny space with Joe Petruzzi, um, both at Red Stitch in Melbourne and also in its original incarnation in Milwaukee um, because it was, at, it was commissioned by a Milwaukee rep. They were the ones who, who were sort of more dictatorial in terms of their commission. Um, that, that was just bliss for me, you know. I, it's, I like small you and I... No, sorry, I was going to say I you like, flirted with... I like one person plays. You have flirted with melodrama quite a bit, haven't you? Um, melodrama, monodrama. <laughs> I said melodrama. I would say melodrama <laughs> as well. Right. That's it. That's what I'm taking away from this interview. Yeah. The, <laughs> let's melodramatically sweep outside and ask Ray for that martini. Um, <laughs> and you, li- you like monodrama. I, I did a little funny thing for you once, didn't I? What was that? That's did... right. You were brilliant. I I, I didn't see you, I, but I um, heard you um, and uh, you were perfect for that, a little monologue about a, a father, a, new, a father of a newborn, um, which has been actually, you know, uh, it, it's been published quite a lot. Oh, has it? In journals. Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, Where's my so, yeah. Yes, I know, Mike. <laughs> I haven't seen a cut yet. But, yeah, look, uh, I think that if you've got the right actor and the right material and the right space, um, you know, it can be as an electric and, and wonderful an experience as, you know, 15 people on a big stage um, and, and often more. And, in fact, that play, American Song, the one, one-man show, was uh, really inspired by having seen um, a one-man show in a perhaps 40-seat theatre, very, very tiny theatre in LA at the Geffen, the smaller of their two theatres, with um, Ed Harris doing a Neil LeBute play called Rex, a really, really horrible play, but clever play. Um, But the experience of being in that tiny space with Ed Harris, who is so powerful and so charismatic and so detailed and so human um, was so phenomenal that I came out of there and I thought, gee, that theatre company want me to write a play about guns in America. What about instead of writing it with 40 actors, I write it with one? Um, And, uh, yeah. Why do you think uh, they chose you to write a play about guns in America and not an American playwright? And I... It's an interesting... Yeah, it was. I mean, the first thing I said to them was, you know, I I live in Australia and we're not crazy uh, over there. Um, So I'm fundamentally unqualified to write you a play about guns. 
but uh, I think in the end it helped because I was not saturated in the um, partisanship of um, that subject. You know, in America it is uh, so the lines are so formally, uh, you know, sort of formally drawn between the left and the right. Increasingly so. Increasingly so. Um, and because it sort of made me fearless. Um, the, the commissioning artistic director of Milwaukee Rep is English, so he was coming as an outsider as well. Uh, and perhaps subconsciously he wanted me to reflect his own horror as a, as a Brit um, going into Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, having one of the, if not the worst, uh, gun fatality rates in America. Um, you know that he had come in as an outsider and and had felt these waves of despair uh, and cynicism and horror at a so-called civilized uh, first world country that is still you know dominated by this argument. Um, and so perhaps he thought another outsider might be able to um, represent that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of waltzed into that job extremely naive. And when I arrived at the company the first time, so, you know, some intern took me up to meet the managing director of the company. And, you know, he, he said, you know, I can't believe you're finally here after all the development. And it's so lovely. And we're so excited to have you here for rehearsals. And I said, I know, I can't believe it either, you know, that sort of Australian, it comes from a country where we have very few guns and no, you know, very few lunatics, um, is, is, uh, is, is here with this play about guns in America. And as we walked out and the door closed, the intern turned to me and said, oh, Chad is the head of the local NRA. And wow. I thought, now you're not going to get an artistic director in Australia who's, uh, you know, the head of the local gun chapter. Um, and that was a very kind of important lesson for me to learn as a sort of, you know, PC, left-leaning Aussie, you know, coming into this world and realising that it's not the same as Australia and no. the audience is not the same either. No, no, we make the mistake of thinking that everyone who is pro-guns in America is a, is a yokel who lives, you know, a hillbilly or but there's yeah. some quite articulate, intelligent humanists on the side exactly. of the gun lobby. Uh, exactly. I mean, at the, at the uh, you know, I sat on a table at some, you know, fancy dinner before the opening night or, you know, one of, one of those nights leading up to the opening night and, you know, I was with all the patrons of the company and the sponsors of the company and whatever, and I it was a table of 12 people and I said, just as a matter of interest, how many people, how many of you own guns? And 10 hands went up. Yeah. Um, so they said to me, I, I said my big, they said, what's your biggest concern going into rehearsals? I said my biggest concern is that I'm preaching to the converted. And they said, There's, have no fear, they're not the converted. 70% of our audiences have guns. And they were very, you're right, they were very intelligent, very engaged, very well-read, very well-educated people. Mm. Do you think, uh, I mean, you've had quite a deal of success internationally, uh, dealing with plays that deal with ideas, I guess. 
there's this sense that, you know, we struggle as a country to produce playwrights that are translated overseas. And you know, take something like um, The Doll, which did fabulously in London but kind of bombed in 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 the States when it went to Broadway. And similarly, there have been some, some Australian plays that have done very well in Europe but have never actually kind of translated to the States. How do you find that, uh, that because you have had plays that have, have been performed in the states and successfully performed in the states what do you think the what do you think the difference is well that's a great question um, I mean other playwrights have had um, success in places I haven't so you know my plays have done quite a lot in Europe but never in France which I think is weird uh, Daniel Keane's plays have been done throughout France and he's quite a star there. Um, Andrew Bovell has had a lot of success in, in England. Um, it's very hard to um, nut that one out. I mean, I suppose that part of it is that I started my uh, love affair with America very young. Uh, I was... I grew up in in love with New York and a lot of a lot of America because my parents were very connected to the sort of left leaning progressive side of America, the the folk music and the uh, lefty historians and the um, you know the great waves of of progressive artists that had. Uh, been part of the union movement and and all of that, and so Studs Terkel and you know Woody Guthrie mm. and and those sort of figures. So that was America to me. I, I got a huge surprise when I met Ray at university, and he was you know twenty uh, one, twenty three or something. Um, and I said I want to go to New York, and he said, "Why would you want to go to America?" I mean, that the idea of sort of seeing America as represented as a as a kind of bastion of kind of consumer consumerist sort of capitalism had sort of barely crossed my mind. Um, that wasn't America to me, and you know, even in these times with Trump, um, I kind of. I struggled to see America that way. To me, America has always been the best of the best. And so when I went there in my 20s, I started to listen to the language, uh, totally subconsciously, but I was listening to the language, I was listening to the vernacular. I, I uh, had many, many friends and still do who are Americans. I um, just submerged myself in the culture, I think. And I think that when it came around to being uh, an adult Australian playwright, dealing with ideas that are not particularly Australian, they're sort of more global ideas about a particular class of people um, and that class of people of educated, that sort of intelligentsia um, exists in Tokyo and it exists in Seoul and it exists in Paris and it exists in Athens and, you know, Tel Aviv and London and New York. Um, I think that the plays had a natural flexibility to be done uh, in other places. And, uh, you know, I have no place names in my plays and something as simple as that meant that, and that was not at all a strategic decision, but something as simple as that meant that when artistic directors read the plays, they immediately could see the play happening in their own midst. 
Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think there are some practical aspects to that and there's some sort of biosmosis aspects to it. But um, I don't, I've never really seen my plays as being limited to um, any particular space. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was... It was uh, a challenge in a way to write a play like the uh, like Switzerland, for instance, which was set in Switzerland, um, or American Song, which was set in America, where I where I actually had a, a a defined location for the telling of this story. That that was a very unusual concept for me to wrestle with, which of course is the usual situation for most playwrights. They're most mostly located somewhere very specific. Mm. Hey, uh, I'm just about done, I reckon. Well, we're done okay. for time. We're done for time, Joe. I yeah. could talk to you well, for... I, you know, I yep, 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 yep. No, that's great. <laughs> um, got, there's a, what, did, I, did I ask you this? Writing is a way of controlling experience. No, you didn't ask me, but, yeah. It has been uh, very much for me a way of um, battling with demons um, and, you know, the demons have fed the writing um, and the writing has subdued the demons. Um, and uh, it's been a happy, you know, fortuitous and, um, you know, circuit really my whole life. I mean, I've, you know, battled with depression and anxiety all my life um, and there have been worse times and better times um, and generally speaking things have got better, uh, you know, um, as I've got older, not always but um, certainly in recent years. Uh, and the writing is definitely a way of uh, understanding my own thought processes and feelings and coming to terms with them. So, yes, you give yourself away in the characters, but you're also working yourself out through the characters, not consciously at all, but there are times where you pick up a play that you haven't read of your own for a long time or you see a production of a play of your own and the cast give it a particular vibrancy and, and truthfulness and you see, you can see things in that performance about yourself that um, take you by surprise and remind you of what you were saddled with at the time that you were writing. Uh, and you realise that, oh, okay, this was my, you know, this was my antidepressant, um, this play. This was what allowed me to feel that I could get through the size of the feelings that I was having. Now, what we touched on there is a topic that is very dear to me, a rather big issue of mental health amongst the creative community. A great many members of the creative community struggle with mental health issues and it's a fact that in order to be good at what we do, you have to be prepared to be vulnerable and that vulnerability is, well, it would appear to be at least at odds with the increasingly business-like cultural policy put out by our governments. And it's a topic I'll be visiting in an episode 
I think, episode 15 of the podcast, where that conversation with Joe will be further explored along with a number of other artists from a variety of disciplines. So I'm going to park that idea for now and cut to this. Uh, I played a Chet Baker song earlier, Joanna Murray-Smith, and I'm not going to tell you which one it is. You're going to have to listen to the podcast to actually hear which one I it will. is. I will be. <laughs> so I, I kind of thought it might be nice to, t- to go out on a piece of music. Okay. Well, I'm you wondering... So you've had the you... martini. Let's imagine I've you've had, had the martini. You've had something to eat. You're sitting down. You're maybe reading a book. Well, I tell you, I would love to hear my great pals, um, Vicar and Linda Bull, sing sing one of their beautiful gospel songs, but I don't know whether they have recorded them. And if not that, then maybe Etta James, who uh, Vicar has done a wonderful stage show about. friend of mine Um, actually toured with him. I adore... who did? Oh, Tibor and Anton Delica. They toured as part of, uh, with that Edda show to the UK. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, well, I know some I musos love... too, Joanna Murray-Smith. <laughs> well, I love Linda and Vicar and um, I know their new album is going incredibly well. Um, they're like, you know, number one on the something or other. And um, I just adore those women. I just think they've got the most fabulous voices. Um and uh, and they're, they're sort of great souls as well. Bigger and Linda it is. Joe, thanks so much. Pleasure, Neil. Lovely to talk to you. You left me crying down on the jetty. You left me standing all on my own. Smaller Then smaller And smaller I kept my eyes on you That's Vicar and Linda Ball live with one of my earlier guests, Paul Kelly, and the song Down on the Jetty. And Vicar and Linda have a new album out. Uh, it's called Sunday, but I don't think that track's actually on it. Anyway... My thanks to Joanna Murray-Smith for allowing me into her creative space. Colom for Saxophone Quartet, our theme music that you can hear quietly welling in the background, was composed by Melbourne's Tim Dargable and performed by Sydney's Continuum Sax. Artwork for the podcast and the Making Art website is by Melbourne artist Darren Henderson of Dirty Good. Our website was designed by Scott at Pixel Shifter and technical production is by Matt Gerberkorn at Sonic Playground. Making Art was recorded and produced by me, Neil Piggott. And don't forget, please, to subscribe, like, review or share us on whatever platform you find us on. And join me in a fortnight-ish when I'll be talking, I hope, with the novelist Christos Soukas. I'll leave you now with a tune that defined cool jazz by two men that did the same. The elegant, low-key and ambiguously called free jazz of Jerry Mulligan and Chet Baker. Walking shoes. Bye for now.